0: Welcome, and let's First Talk Compliance. I'm Katherine Short, Manager of Virtual Education at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. This show is brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high-quality, complementary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. Please show your support by taking a moment to provide a review on Google, Facebook or iTunes. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. On today's episode, we are speaking with Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC, Houston, Texas, on the topic of appreciating the content of a business associate agreement. Business associate agreements, a BAA, is a contract that fundamentally gives assurances that the parties are complying with the security rule and privacy rule, setting parameters in the event of a reportable security incident or a breach, and states how the sensitive data will be returned and destroyed at the end of the relationship. Some of the items in the BAA are required, while others are optional but common. This Presentation not only seeks to dispel myths about why certain language is prevalent in nearly all BAAs, but also provides insight into other provisions and items for consideration in light of the 21st Century Cures Act. Before we begin, I would like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals, and every month we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our compliance Super Ninja recognition. For this episode, we're spotlighting Super Ninja Wendy Mulkey, Business Development Marketing at Emerald Coast Neurology. Wendy says, I am a lifelong learner. Working at Emerald Coast Neurology has allowed me to continue to grow and learn. I feel my contributions are making a positive impact for the staff and patients. At the end of the day, I just want to make a difference. I feel like I'm accomplishing that at Emerald Coast. Congratulations, Wendy. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. So hello, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining me today
1: on First Talk Compliance to speak about BAAs. Thank you, Catherine. It's always my pleasure to collaborate with you and First Healthcare Compliance in order to hopefully provide meaningful content to the listeners. Thank you. So um, how about some background first? Can you give
0: us an overview of exactly what a BAA or a business associate agreement
1: is and who it involves? Absolutely. Not surprisingly, that is a very detailed question. As your introduction mentioned, a business associate agreement, which is referred to in 45 CFR 160.504E as a business associate contract, is just that. It's an agreement between two parties to do three primary things. First ensure that both parties are utilizing the appropriate technical, administrative, and physical safeguards in order to ensure that the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the protected health information remains intact. Additionally, it relates to the privacy rule, the entire security rule, and the breach notification rules being adhered to. The second element that always jumps out at me is the notification to the other party and then potentially to HHS patients and the media in breaches of 500 or more individuals and making sure that the parties designate the timeline that party A, the typically the party who's and the breach occurred on, tells party B about this, and then what transpires after that. And then the last main requirement or part of a business associate agreement is what to do when the relationship between the parties terminates. Now, that might seems simple. Oh, I just need to either return and or destroy the data in a manner that complies with the HIPAA security rule and preferably with NIST. That's part of it, but as we all know, there are situations where we can't just return or destroy information. Some of those may be obligations of a legal hold or a government investigation or a lawsuit that might be in place. And under federal HIPAA, it applies to covered entities, which are healthcare providers, health care claims clearinghouses, and insurance companies and then their business associates, and then a subcontractor of that business associate. Okay. And what is
0: a primary purpose or purposes of a BAA?
1: So as I mentioned, there are typically three main areas. First, you need to define who the parties are at the very top. And which one assumes what role, whether it's a covered entity and business associate or business associate and subcontractor. All of that is exceptionally important. So just something to be conscientious about there. Then you delve into the three overarching areas or purposes behind the business associate agreement A, to ascertain that both parties each have been given reasonable assurances that the technical, administrative, and physical safeguards, as well as the privacy rule, security rule, and breach notification rule compliance and requirements are being met. Another item that relates to that now is the 21st Century Cures Act and the ability to give patients their medical records in formats such as smartphone apps that weren't necessarily available before. But along with that related to information blocking are situations where a provider or a business associate may say, you know what? Our, the general rule is that we have to provide this, but this is not a an app that is secure or that we're familiar with. And for the safety of the entire IT infrastructure, we're not going to provide that. So it's important now to reference state laws and other relevant laws such as the 21st Century Cures Act. The next main area has to do with notification to the other party of a reportable cybersecurity incident, typically known as a breach, in accordance with the breach notification rule. And there are really two steps to that. First, you want to have a time frame set out between the parties as to when party A, if they're the breaching party, has to notify party B that there has been a breach. That's important because their IT department needs to take appropriate steps in order to safeguard certain things or go to plan B or to go to backups. So it's really mutual in nature along those lines. And then the second part of a reportable breach would then be under the breach notification rule to report to HHS, to report to the patients, and to report to the media if the breach itself affects 500 individuals or more. Okay, great. Is there any
0: party or person or entity that a facility works with that it's perhaps safe not to have
1: a BAA with? So that's a great question, Catherine, and first I will go to what's known as the conduit exception, and that's something that was highlighted in the final omnibus rule, which is published at 78. Federal Register 5566 on January 25th of 2013. And the conduit exception expressly states that there are certain entities and they are very limited, but they are, for example, your internet provider would be one, your UPS <laughs> Uh, carrier, whether it's the United States Postal Service, DHL, UPS, FedEx, any one of those types of carriers, so long as none of their entities did anything other than deliver the package, right, they are just transporting data from point A to point B, and that's it. So having said that, and by way of contrast, I think it's important to note that data centers, are considered business associates and do not fall within that exception. Another entity that is considered a business associate is a cloud computing provider. So whether you utilize AWS or Microsoft Azure, for example, those are still business associates and that's why when you go onto their website, you will see their business associate agreements as well as some commentary on HIPAA and other data privacy laws. Another one that is often a, a question, so to speak, is a lawyer. Is a lawyer a business associate? And the answer there is it depends. And even in my own practice, there are times when I contract with a covered entity. But if I'm just reviewing physician contracts, I'm not delving into protected health information. I'm not looking at financials. I'm not looking at anything that would tie any individual back to the past, present, or future diagnosis, treatment, or financial information associated with any of those items. However, the minute they ask me to look at something that contains PHI, that is absolutely a covered entity, business associate situation, which would require a business associate agreement.
0: Okay, so example, the custodial company perhaps would not need a business associate, but medical waste hauling
1: would. The cleaning entities are very interesting because if you think about it, They have access to everything, and typically when no one's there to supervise them. So, right. hopefully, the organization has all safeguards in place that when everyone goes home, there is no information that's left on a computer. A computer's still not on. They don't have their passcodes in their top drawer on a sticky note, right? And they have those bins that are locked. So that the information goes to Iron Mountain or another vendor to be shredded and people can't access that. I think there's a distinction, too, between whether, for example, in a hospital, if the environmental services team is hired by the hospital as individual employees, then they are part of the workforce and they should undergo HIPAA training as part of the workforce. But they're not an independent contractor. Does that make sense? Right, right. Yeah. And I was speaking of perhaps like an outside
0: contract cleaning company or environmental company as opposed to employees of the hospital.
1: No, I think, Catherine, too, on that one, there's just so much potential liability there. They could let someone in the back door, right? Because they have right. access. And that's something that I do advise people maybe even to have a modified agreement, if not with all the bells and whistles, but just to ensure that they understand <laughs> that if they steal something or if there's an issue, they need to know what, what to do and what their potential liability is. True. If you're just tuning in, you're
0: listening to First Talk Compliance brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high quality, complimentary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. My guest today is Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, principal with Rachel V. Rose, attorney at law, PLC, Houston, Texas, on the topic of appreciating the content of a business associate agreement. Please show your support by taking a few minutes to provide a review of First Healthcare Compliance on Google or Facebook. You can also follow us and subscribe to all forms of social media. Okay. Can you explain reasonable assurances in relation to business associate agreements and maybe tell
1: us a little bit more what reasonable assurances are? Sure, absolutely. So, Basically, it comes up in a lot of different areas of law. So reasonable assurances in HIPAA would be the following because the first part of the business associate agreement should have both parties giving assurances that they meet the technical, administrative and physical safeguards in order to Ensure the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the data. So, what would give someone peace of mind is the way I like to think of it, and also give them something legally that they could say, you know what, we know that we do not have a right to go in and inspect everything. So, what I do is have my clients get a signature on an attestation and the purpose behind it. It's very short. It's about half a page in length. And all it says is that these reasonable assurances are being provided in order to give peace of mind that the party is adhering to the requirements of HIPAA and the High Tech Act. And if people can answer these five questions in earnest, y- you should walk away with a good feeling that they're doing everything that needs to be done. The first question is d- does the party undergo an annual risk analysis that is comprehensive? Second, do they train their workforce annually? Third, is PHI insensitive PII encrypted both at rest and in transit? Fourth, are business associate agreements in place and are they recorded? And lastly, are policies and procedures at least reviewed annually and are they comprehensive? So with that, that is, A, how I define and think of a reasonable assurance. And secondly, how I advise my clients to protect themselves. And then lastly, the types of reasonable assurances are those five that I hone in on.
0: Okay, great. What are indemnification provisions and what language should be used in indemnification
1: provisions? That's a loaded question. <laughs> uh, I'm going to point kind of uh, in jest, but kind of not in jest and suggest that people listen to our webinar on indemnification. But in all seriousness, it's typically thought of as a contractual obligation of one party to compensate the loss incurred to the other party due to certain acts of the indemnitor or any other party. The duty to indemnify is usually, but not always, coexisting with the contractual duty to hold harmless or save harmless. So, let's step back for a moment. So, typically First, before you draft an indemnification provision, you want to make sure that you have an appreciation of a variety of different state laws, whether it is derived from common law or whether it is like California set forth in a statute. So typically the way a lot of indemnification provisions are written are to indemnify, Defend and hold harmless. And if you don't have that exact language, depending on the jurisdiction that you're in, you may or may not have to defend someone and pay for those costs. It's so specific to the facts and circumstances in general that I'm trepidatious just to throw out any language surrounding that. But I will say that it's important to appreciate the significance of an indemnification provision. And some indemnifications provisions I read and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I would not advise anyone to sign that. It's because it's so one sided that only one party is held harmless. And in the event of a breach, regardless of (laughs) whether or not, for example, a business associate caused the breach, some of these indemnification provisions read that the business associate is responsible for all of the costs. So that should be one of the provisions that any person reads very, very carefully because it could A, contradict with your other contracts that you have in place. B, you could be shouldering all of the liability even even if you're not responsible for the breach or the bad act. So when I write them, I typically make them Mutual that if one's being indemnified, the other one's going to indemnify if they're at fault. So it's mutual defend is the key term that I discuss with the party. And typically the party will go back to the other entity if they are in a negotiation. And oftentimes they'll say, you know what, we'll just agree to be responsible for our own attorney's fees on this. So that's what will happen there and then the last part of that that it's something i've been doing for a few years now is to really carve out and there there are two schools of thought but when i carve out specific indemnification provisions related to a breach it's the breaching party has the obligation to pay for the notification to government entities to the media and to the individual patients. But that's where the liability ends. So there's no payment of attorney's fees. There's no payment of ransomware. There's no paying for a deductible on an insurance policy or anything like that. What My clients, and actually when I've been on the phone with opposing parties as well, what they've said is that we like this because we know up front what we're responsible for and it's limited to this and it's balanced for both of us. So there's no cookie cutter way to draft an indemnification provision. You just have to literally take it word by word with the parties that you're dealing with.
0: Okay, I've got another question that has some defining in it and then some explanation. What is a material breach for those that don't know? And can you tell us what MSA stands for? And then how can a material breach of the MSA affect
1: the MSA or other contracts? MSA is typically your master service agreement. So, That's typically what I have seen, but obviously it's your main contract. But if you are contracting with an IT provider, typically it's your MSA is your main contract. If you think about how a breach is defined in HIPAA section 164.402, basically it's the acquisition, access, use, or disclosure of protected health information in a manner that is not permitted, which compromises the security or privacy of the protected health information. So basically, when you think of what a material breach is, one can really think of that as, was the incident one that triggered the following? A, requires us to do a root cause analysis to determine whether or not it's a reportable breach. And then if it is a reportable breach, then how does that impact the underlying contracts? So it's a little misleading, Catherine, and this is a great question for this reason. If we're thinking about ransomware or what we think about in cybersecurity, a breach means that definition that I just read, right, in 164.402, but that has to do with a breach of the information. What Flows from that breach of the information can be a material breach of either the business associate agreement and or the master service agreement, depending on how things are worded. Okay, so what if an entity
0: doesn't fit into one of the HIPAA buckets of covered entities business associates, and or subcontractors, do they still have
1: potential liability? There is potential liability. So the three ways that potential liability may arise are, A, under state law. So, for example, I mentioned Texas that has the definition of a covered entity, which is any person who creates, receives, maintains or transmits PHI. So while that does include the three federal HIPAA buckets, it actually goes beyond that. So that's one way. Another way is through the Federal Trade Commission. And I know in the related webinar, I delved into that in some detail, but basically the Federal Trade Commission has its own breach notification rule that says if you're not obligated under HIPAA, you may still have an obligation to report a breach of PHI to consumers. From there, pursuant to the Federal Trade Commission Act, Title V, courts have held that the Federal Trade Commission does in fact have enforcement authority in that situation. So that's where you could get another government enforcement action. The last way would be through either a class action lawsuit or a common law negligence lawsuit for a HIPAA breach. So those are really the three ways that someone can be held liable. Okay. And then is a BAA, is that a binding contract? It is a binding contract and it is binding for a multitude of reasons, but it is per the regulations considered a contract. And if you are creating receiving maintaining or transmitting protected health information between the covered entity business associate and subcontractor you do have a an obligation to enter into a contract
0: okay well thank you so much Rachel i think we're just about out of
1: time did you have any other any other thoughts that you wanted to share with us just be aware that baas are not cookie cutter However, there are certain terms and certain provisions which you'll see over and over again, and that's because they're required by the statute and then recommended by HHS on their website.
0: I really wanted to thank you, Rachel, for coming on to First Talk Compliance on our show today and discussing this important subject. So thank you so much. You're welcome, Catherine. And as always, thank you for having me. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about the show on our programs page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at Short at firsthcc.com. I'm Katherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind.